Our gracious Heavenly Father, O oh Lord, as these uh, songs that we have sung so um, beautifully express, You are a great and glorious God. You are our Heavenly Father for those of us who have turned from our sins and trusted in Christ and in the sacrifice of Your Son. Lord, You have become our Father. We have entered into a loving relationship with You. And Lord, tonight we have an opportunity to reflect upon and remember and celebrate the amazing love that You've displayed toward us in the person and the work of Your Son, Jesus Christ. May we walk away, Lord, encouraged, invigorated, all the more desiring to, Lord, live on mission on this earth, seeking to see Jesus lifted high and exalted here in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to be partaking of communion, as you can see up front uh, in a little while, but um, we have the wonderful privilege before that of focusing our attention on the death of our Lord Jesus Christ on this Good Friday, and I pray that you've prepared your heart to do that, that you've been especially focused this week on just the significance of what Jesus did on the cross for our sins. I pray that you have taken a, a good amount of time to reflect upon Him, His person, and His work. So turn, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 21. And as you turn to 2 Corinthians 5, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever considered the issue or the question of who put Jesus on the cross? Who put Jesus on the cross? You ever think about that? Maybe you discussed that with somebody. I've had a handful of discussions over the years with people informally or formally just talking about the issue of who was responsible for Jesus' death. And different answers, of course, come up. Was it the Roman government? You know, the Romans were the empire that was uh, in control of the world pretty much during that time. They had all power and control over everyone. So was it the Roman Empire that put Jesus to death? Was it the Jewish leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the, the governing body of the Jews? You know, those guys were constantly, constantly hounding our Lord Jesus Christ um, when He was... Uh, fulfilling his ministry on earth? Was it them? Was it the Jewish people? The multitudes who were following after Jesus, who one day were very um, enamored by him and were very thankful for the gifts that he was um, imparting to them. But then, when Jesus was on the cross, what were they screaming at him and yelling? Crucify him! Crucify him! Was it the Jewish people that put Jesus on the cross that killed Christ in one sense, I think if we really stop to look at scriptures, all of the above were contributors, weren't they? The Roman authorities were the instruments that God used to put Jesus on the cross to kill him, to inflict pain upon him. The Jewish leaders certainly contributed by their accusations about Jesus, lying about him, even in an illegal um, a case brought against him, case after case. The Jewish people certainly contributed. The mobs of people who turned from being very supportive of Him because of the gifts, and they didn't love the giver. All of them really contributed to one extent or another. But if we stopped there, and just left it at that, that it was one of them or all of them together, it wouldn't be a complete answer, would it? It wouldn't be a complete answer. Sure, from a human perspective, they all contributed, but... There's something greater. There was a greater purpose for Jesus' death 
wasn't there? And here in our passage, I think we get the ultimate answer and the right answer of who was ultimately responsible for putting Jesus on the cross, putting him to death. Look at verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 5. The Word of God says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, in other words, in union with Christ, in fellowship with Christ, a believer in other words, he is a new creature, literally a new creation. The old things have passed away. That is, those things that were a part of our sinful lifestyles as non-believers. Behold, new things have come. And then notice verse 18. Now all these things are from God. What are the, these things? That these things have to do with pertaining to our new creation, our new life in Christ. All of these things, the fact that we are new creatures... All of these things are from God. From God who, speaking of God still, who reconciled us to Himself. And notice, and never forget this little prepositional phrase here about Christ. Through Christ. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So notice in verse 18, all of these things pertaining to salvation and to the new birth are from God. They originate. God is the source of salvation the one who reconciled us to Himself. That's emphatic there. God initiated this and reconciled people to Himself. And then verse 19, namely, God was in Christ. God was in the person of Christ. Or in the person of Christ, reconciled the world to Himself. Verse 19. And then in verse 21, He, God, made Him, Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Don't miss the emphasis over and over in this passage that that God is the divine initiator in salvation. He is the source. He is the origin of salvation. I understand that when you hear that, say, well, I've heard that, done that. That's something that I would affirm. But I don't think that that reality that God has initiated salvation with sinners such as us hits us until we consider the terminology used in this passage for what God did in our salvation. You will notice in verse 18 that Paul uses the word reconciled. God who reconciled us to himself. And then in verse 19, he says, namely, God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against Him. And He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And then again later on, in verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In some way, shape, or form, the word reconciliation appears five times in this passage. As a beautiful, uh, to point to the beautiful reality of what God accomplished in salvation. It is relational terminology. Because you see, the fundamental problem that God solves in salvation is a broken relationship with Him. That is the fundamental core problem. Our sin, your sin, your personal sin, you are by nature a sinner, each of us are. But also we flesh that sin out personally when we commit sins of attitude, of heart, 
of intentions, of action, of words, of motivation, of purposes. We flesh out that sin. Our personal sin separates us from God. Alienates us from Him. And God who is holy cannot have fellowship with darkness. He who is light rejects all darkness, which is a metaphor in Scripture for wickedness and sin and depravity in in humanity. Now, as you think about this idea of reconciliation, um, we can understand this from a human perspective, can't we? What happens in normal human relationships? What is normal and reasonable in human relationships when you are at enmity with someone or there's a conflict between you and somebody else? If you as a human being have offended someone else, then you as the one who has offended the other is responsible to initiate reconciliation with that person. To initiate making peace with that person with whom you have a conflict. We understand that from a human perspective. And we don't look at somebody who initiates, who has offended someone and has and initiates peace and reconciliation with that person. And we don't look at that and say, oh, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's not right that that person had to go and do that. What do we do as human beings? We look at that and we say, no, that is right. It is reasonable. It is logical. It is appropriate. It is fitting. It is right that the person who has offended the other goes and initiates reconciliation. Do we not do that? And we encourage one another to do that, don't we? In human relationships. But with that in mind, think about what this passage is telling us again and again. That God initiated reconciliation with sinners such as you and I. That though we had offended a holy God, we have trespassed, we have committed blunders, we have broken His law, we have sinned against Him, we, because of our sin, deserve death and punishment. We deserve that. And yet, what did God do, beloved? What did God do? Look at verse 19. It says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. God in the person of Christ sought us. He initiated reconciliation with us who had offended Him. Think about that tonight. Think about that tonight. Was that fair? Yes or no? Absolutely not. It wasn't fair. If we're defining it from a human perspective, that God had to initiate that with us, and yet He did that. This is great love, isn't it? So much so that authors can't even grasp and fathom this love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says this, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And gave His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God loved us and gave His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation that is the wrath-removing sacrifice. We deserved the wrath of God for our sin. And instead, Jesus took upon God's wrath for us. He is the propitiation for our sins, the wrath-removing, appeasing sacrifice. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. 
But God demonstrates his own love toward us. Listen to this. We love people because many times they are deserving of our love. They are deserving of our kindness. They deserve our mercy. But God, look at this in chapter Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In our helpless, hopeless state when we were not lovely, when we were not seeking him, when we did not show appreciation and gratitude to him, God initiated salvation for us who are not worthy, but exactly the opposite. The death of Christ, beloved, tonight reminds us that God was moved by love for us so as to punish his son for us that we might have a relationship with him. You know, I've met people who had never had a relationship with their biological father on earth. And then one day, one particular guy met his father, his biological father. The biological father reached out to this individual and to this individual it meant everything in the world to them that their father actually thought about them so as to initiate a human relationship with them finally. And they have a relationship to this day now. Listen, I I wonder how many of us feel this way about God. How many of us are, are moved tonight that the God of the universe actually thought about you and initiated a relationship with you. Think about that. Does that move you? Does that cause you to to be full of gratitude and and just with a, a sense of celebration because of the fact that God loves you? He's loved you in Christ. So are you moved tonight that the God of the universe wanted a relationship with you of all people? It's mind-boggling, isn't it? When you stop and consider the thoughts that you've had over your lifetime and the things that you've done and the attitudes that you've had and the, the, the misplaced priorities and the way that you've hated people and you haven't always loved others and met the needs of others and yet God initiated a relationship with you through His Son, Jesus Christ. Not because you deserve it, not because you're worthy of it, but because of His great love for you. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Salvation originates in the very heart of God, doesn't it? This is something that we should relish and celebrate as believers. So who put Jesus on the cross? I think this passage is very clear. God the Father did. God initiated reconciliation. And why did he do it? Because he has chosen to glorify himself in the reconciliation of sinners unto himself. God has chosen that path to glorify himself by doing good to you and I at the core of that saving us from our sins and the judgment that was aimed in our direction. That's why he's done it. Now, another question that we should ask is this. How did he reconcile sinners to himself? How did he do this? You see, God can't simply sweep our sin under the rug, right? He can't do that. He can't ignore it. He can't diminish its seriousness. He can't downplay our sin. 
For God to do that, to diminish it, to sweep sin under the rug, to downplay it, to not take it serious, would be to compromise His holiness and His justice. God is holy. He is the incomparable one. He is perfect and sinless and blameless. And He is just. He always makes the right decisions. He always renders the appropriate consequences. And sin requires a consequence. So how does God preserve His glory? As seen in His holiness and justice. And, listen, at the same time, love sinners by saving them. How does He do both? How does He preserve His glory, namely His holiness and His justice? He can't compromise who He is. And at the same time, love sinners by saving them. Well, look at the beautiful verse 21. One of the greatest verses in all of the Bible. He, God the Father specifically, He made Him, God the Son, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Beloved, this is the heart of the Christian gospel right here. This is what we call the the doctrine of double imputation. Imputation means to, to ascribe, to attribute, or to credit something to someone. That's what imputation means. You know, in the Hernandez home, we have an agreement with our kids, our older kids, especially the ones who work now. That for every dollar amount, up to a certain amount, and we got this advice from some from other parents that did this, which we really appreciated. For every dollar amount, up to a certain certain amount, we will match that dollar amount that they are saving, putting in their savings account, and we will transfer an e- the equal amount of money into their account. So if they put twenty five bucks in their savings account, we will transfer twenty five dollars and match that into their savings account as well to try to reward them for that. So we're, we're crediting or placing money into their account. It's considered theirs. They didn't, they did nothing to deserve it. It was their parents' choice to do that, but it's really theirs now. It is their money credited to their account. Now I realize that every illustration in some place falls short when we're trying to describe eternal realities and comparing eternal realities to those illustrations, but God does something similar in salvation, doesn't He? As seen in this verse 21, he reconciles sinners to himself, listen, in a twofold way, according to verse 21. On the one hand, we as sinners have an infinite debt to pay because of our sin. We deserve death. We deserve eternal death, eternal separation from God. So on the one hand, God imputes or credits, reckons, places our sin Upon Jesus. Verse 21. God the Father made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That doesn't mean that God the Father makes Jesus a sinner. But that He places our sin upon Jesus so that as sin bearer, Jesus now takes full responsibility to pay for our sins. Sin requires punishment. The wages of sin is what? Death. Death. That's what sin will always bring. And eternal death if you don't turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. 
Someone must pay our infinite debt against an infinitely holy God. And none of us are able to do that. None of us qualify to be able to do that. Only Christ, who was perfect and sinless and spotless, who is eternally God and fully man, could pay for that infinite debt that we cannot pay for. Only Jesus, the Son of God, can do that. He alone qualifies as the substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. Only Him and Him alone. We can't do it. We simply can't save ourselves. And so this is one side of the coin. God imputed, credited, placed upon Jesus, listen to this, our hideous sin. If that doesn't move you, I don't know what else will move you. And then on the flip side, we lack something, don't we? We lack true righteousness. We are not righteous. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God, says Romans 3. We've all turned aside. Together we become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. There is nobody righteous. So on the flip side, we need and righteous is an alien righteousness outside of ourselves. Something that we cannot generate from within. And so God, on the flip side, imputes or credits Jesus' perfect righteousness upon us. It isn't that we become actually righteous at conversion, but that God reckons or considers us righteous as His own Son, as if we had lived the perfect life that Jesus lived, as if we have fully paid the penalty for our sins, though Jesus alone did that we know. This double imputation is referred to as the great exchange. The great exchange. My sin placed upon Christ, Christ's righteousness imputed or placed upon me. My sin goes to my perfect, beloved, blameless Jesus. His perfect righteousness is placed upon me who deserve hell and judgment and condemnation. You can't find a better deal than that on earth, right? It's a great exchange. It's the greatest exchange. The greatest exchange. And most important, this great exchange, listen, this is very important, is how God is able to preserve His holy and just character on the one hand, and on the other hand, out of love, reconcile sinners to Himself. That is, do you and I good in Jesus Christ. So that as Romans chapter 3, verse 26 says, that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith In Jesus. He preserves, doesn't compromise his holiness and his justice, and at the same time shows us his amazing love. We who deserve only hell and condemnation, we get blessing and favor in Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing, beloved, tonight? As we think about Jesus' death, his death reminds us that God is the initiator of reconciliation. And that God offers us the greatest, most wondrous exchange in order to save us from our desperate predicament, our sin. The question tonight is, have you received or accepted this free gift? By faith. By abandoning trust in your own resources and putting your trust in Jesus Christ. Have you you accepted this free gift of reconciliation by faith through Jesus Christ alone? Through Him alone. 
See, Jesus' death reminds us that God is about making peace with sinners. But you must respond to His initiative by believing in Jesus Christ, by putting your trust from the heart genuinely upon the finished work of Jesus on the cross who has secured your forgiveness, reconciliation, and eternal life. You must receive it by faith, not by works. In John 19.30, Jesus, when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said this on the cross, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. See, the work of redemption is done. It is finished. No one can add to it. No one can add merit to it. You must simply trust, abandon self-trust and transfer that trust all 100% to Jesus Christ and that atoning sacrifice alone that is finished, complete, secure to be saved. It's all of grace. It's all of grace. There's nothing, if you've noted in this passage, there's nothing here in this passage about us doing anything. Anything. As far as as merits before God. Reconciliation is all by grace. It is unmerited. We cannot earn it. It is undeserved. We're not worthy of it. We cannot achieve it. Right? This Sunday we're going to look more extensively in Titus chapter 3 verse 5 which says that our salvation is not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. It is solely a supernatural act of God, a miracle of God, based upon the atoning sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. Not based upon anything that we do. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, faith in Christ, And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Paul has to add that in case anyone has any doubts about what he's saying. Not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. No one can boast in their salvation. It is all of God through Jesus Christ. All based upon the merits of Christ. Offered to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you made that commitment? How sad would it be that you are here on... A night when we celebrate the sacrifice of Christ. And that sacrifice has not been applied to you because you, do, you have not turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus alone. How sad would that be? And for us who are believers, who are Christians, this is a time of great reflection and celebration, isn't it? Great celebration because of our beautiful relationship with God. We have been adopted as God's children, and all of that, beloved, is made possible by the death of Jesus Christ. That's what we're celebrating tonight. 